This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Sam Ritter is a research scientist at DeepMind. Thanks for joining us today, Sam. Uh, thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm especially excited to chat with you about episodic memory and deep RL and neuroscience. Great. Okay, so you've already started, but how do you describe uh, your area of research? Yeah, so I guess for the last almost four years now, I've been really focused on deep reinforcement learning and especially um, the use of a particular data structure in deep RL. And that data structure is, is called episodic memory, uh, which sounds, I don't know, really specific or fancy, but really it just means that your deep RL agent has an agent state that can grow um, to arbitrary size. So it's kind of the opposite of having a, a fixed size agent state. Um, in, in the kind of course of, of working with, with that um, data structure in DeepRL, I've, I've gotten the chance to do some kind of agent uh, performance development work as well as some, some neuroscience work. So using these DeepRL systems as models of, of human cognition um, and what might be happening in, in the brain. Uh, so let's start with meta-learning. Uh, in your dissertation, uh, you focused on episodic meta-RL. Uh, is that right? Not just episodic RL? And can you remind us how uh, how meta-RL is defined? Episodic RL, um, you know, I, I kind of think of it as, as starting with this, uh, at this point, fairly classic paper by um, Mate Lingyal and Peter Diane, where they basically said, you know, look, we can do, um, you know, value function learning um, with a uh, sort of a kernel regression model rather than a parametric system. Um, so in that setup, we're going to have basically a storage of all the past, all the past states that we've seen. Um, and we're going to, with each one of those past states, record, um, you know, something about the return, the, the rewards that were seen after those states. And then when we go to estimate the value of some new state, we'll do like a weighted sum over those past states and some embedding space. Um, uh, using you know a, a kernel that'll that'll give us basically a a scalar for each past uh, state as uh, that kind of estimates how similar it is to the current one, and we'll just do a weighted sum over those uh, returns that are associated with them in order to estimate the the current value function. Um, so it's a very specific um, kind of algorithm, and it's recently been um, the the term episodic uh, RL has been um, kind of broadened a little bit in some recent work by. Uh, Nathaniel Daw and, and colleagues, um, but that's kind of the the, the most canonical form of it, really. Um, in contrast, um, episodic meta RL comes out of this, um, you know, meta reinforcement learning work, uh, which which really started with. Um, uh, you know, a couple of papers, or at least it was popularized, at the very least, by a couple of papers in 2016, um, one by uh, uh, Jane Wong and another one by uh, Duan and colleagues. And in those papers, they demonstrated that you could learn by reinforcement learning how to do reinforcement learning. So specifically, they would just train a, you know, A3C style agent. Um, so basically, um, uh, an RL agent with a recurrent memory, in those cases, an LSTM, you could train those agents on tasks that required um, RL to be done sort of inside the task. So an example would be a bandit problem. So in, in those papers, they trained um, these LSTM-based agents on, you know, these 
10 step or 100 step bandit problems. Um, and what they observed was that um, these agents could actually learn to perform what appear to be uh, close to Bayes optimal um, exploration um, and, and sort of handle the expo- and learn to handle the exploration exploitation trade-off. Um, so it's a really kind of cool uh, way of thinking about what goes on in these recurrent uh, reinforcement learning systems, we can actually think of them as learning uh, reinforcement learning algorithms that they will execute at, um, at inference time. Um, so then episodic meta-RL um, is, is basically to some work that comes out of some work that I did uh, following on, on Jane Wong's meta-RL work, where we basically said, all right, but look, if, if we have this fixed width memory uh, recurrent controller, and it's capable of doing, um, you know, of, of, do, of, of learning banded algorithms. Maybe we can learn more sophisticated algorithms if we provide that system with an episodic store. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the work that, that you and I will talk about today, Robin, will, will be kind of um, expounding on this point, um, kind of demonstrating what we can do if we add episodic to meta-RL. And I'll just actually point out that the the sort of narrow form of episodic RL that I mentioned um, is the kind of thing that you could, in principle, learn to do um, by meta-RL with an episodic memory. So so it, it does kind of all fit together. We can say, oh, by um, episodic meta-RL, we can learn to do episodic RL. We have the data structure and we have um, sort of the, the neural networks in place to learn to do that. So meta RL, is that something that happens um, in the brain? I guess I always assumed that we evolved to do RL in the brain and maybe meta RLs is just a, uh, something we do in software. Is that true or does that happen in neuroscience? I think it's a question and it's definitely an open one. Um, so the hypothesis that meta RL might happen in the brain is um, sort of uh, built up in a fairly recent paper from from Jane Wong and colleagues um, at, at DeepMind from, I think, 2017 or 2018 when it was published. It's in Nature Neuroscience, and um, they basically use this LSTM A3C uh, agent as a model of human behavior and animal behavior and even uh, neural recordings from air animals um, as they as they carry out various sort of lab tasks and and what Jane and colleagues show in that paper is that with this really simple model which is basically just a recurrent working memory that um, has sort of parameters that are or, or weights or synapses if you will that are learned uh, to maximize reward um, as it's defined in these lab tasks um, just by using that as a model you can recover um, some really specific characteristics of, of human and animal behavior and some um, uh, striking sort of features in the uh, neural recordings that, that are made as they're carrying out that behavior so um, you know do we have like definitive evidence that the brain does meta rl i think you know that's that's always going to be hard to um, um, ascertain for certain, but I think the evidence is pretty good, and, and it's a, a model that I think is um, at this point has uh, a fair amount of like recognition by the the cognitive neuroscience community. I guess from my point of view, episodic RL and meta RL are both a little bit exotic, and here you are treating these two things, the intersection of these two things together. Um, 
Can you talk about why uh, you wanted to treat them together, the pair of them? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was, <laughs> it seemed like a really obvious pairing in context. Um, so maybe I can describe that context and um, it'll seem obvious to, to, to you and the audience as well. Um, so basically, I um, was in the middle of my PhD around the time that Jane um, did this meta-RL work. And I thought it was really, really interesting. And I'd been working on some language stuff before, but I kind of wanted to make a switch. I was getting really keen on on um, reinforcement learning. And um, so I, I went to my advisor, Matt Bofinick, who was the senior author on that paper. And I asked him, you know, like, what, what what's, uh, you know, bugging you about about meta-RL? What's, what's not quite there? What are some interesting avenues? And what he said was that... Um, the meta RL agent, the one that has basically this recurrent working memory in the form of an LSTM, that agent basically um, behaves like uh, a human who has hippocampal amnesia. So, so what is that? So, the hippocampus is this structure um, uh, in in the, the mammalian brain uh, that have, that appears to have. Um, a large role in uh, the storage of information for long periods of time and specifically in uh, what's called episodic memory. So the ability to remember specific events from the past. And what Matt was getting at there is that these meta RL agents, you could drop them into say a bandit problem and they would be really smart at, you know, trying, trying an arm and then making the correct inference based on, uh, the reward they got, what the right arm to try uh, next would be, and basically doing really smart, close to Bayes optimal um, decision making. But as soon as you pull them out of that bandit problem and drop them in another one, they completely forget the solution that they learned. So throughout the course of you know their experience with that previous bandit problem, they pretty much figured out the task. They solved the task. And as soon as you pull them out, they completely forget it. So you can drop them back in that same bandit problem again, and just like a hippocampal amnesic would do, they have to start from scratch. And they have, you know, the general knowledge about how to solve bandit problems, um, but they just don't remember that specific one. They don't remember the episode, if you will. So they kind of lack episodic memory. And at the same time, um, Greg Wayne and colleagues at, at DeepMind had um, demonstrated sort of success using uh, episodic memory, that is in the um, definition I was, I was using earlier, like using episodic memory, this uh, ever-growing buffer of, um, of, of vectors um, in deep reinforcement learning. So the Merlin paper um, had, I, I don't know if it had come out, but we at that point knew that uh, that agent worked well, and we knew that you could um, do episodic memory in deep RL, which was quite exciting at that point. It was, it was a novel demonstration. Um, and so, uh, my advisor, Matt and I were thinking, okay, let's see if we can, um, endow these meta RL, meta RL agents with a hippocampus. And that basically is, um, what kind of kickstarted the work that, that ended up in my dissertation, um, was basically, and, and it was basically starting with this goal of like, Let's make it so that um, meta-RL agents can remember the solutions that they discover using their smart meta-RL strategies. I just want to say I enjoyed your, your two meta-learning uh, talks on, on YouTube, and I encourage the audience to, to check them out. We'll have links to, to them in the episode page. 
So can you tell us more about how you contrast meta learning to some closely related terms like transfer learning and, and few shot learning? Or is it closely related to those? I'd say, yeah, it feels very related to me. So I guess first kind of a, a basic definition of meta learning, um, so, sort of intuitively, like a broad definition of meta learning is just learning how to learn. So for instance, you uh, learn your first programming language and it's really hard to do. You haven't learned how to you know, browse Stack Overflow or read docs, and you don't know what data structures are, um, et cetera. But then the second programming language you learn, it's a lot easier because you've learned some background knowledge and you kind of know the strategies that work. Um, you know, kind of little exercises you can set for yourself um, and, and things like that, that enable you to uh, learn much faster uh, by nature of learn, having learned how to do it. Um, in machine learning, we have a more sort of specific um, and, and narrow and also a more formal definition of what meta learning is. Um, and, and I think it's useful to have that formal definition to contrast with the other uh, problem settings that, that you pointed out, Robin. So um, the formal definition of meta learning, uh, the meta learning setting is that you have a learner, which is faced with a series of learning tasks. So tasks where in order to solve it, you have to learn some stuff. And each one of those learning tasks is drawn from some distribution. So basically, I have this big bag of learning tasks, and I'm just going to, for each episode of my learner's experience, I'm going to pull out a learning task and make the learner try to solve it. Um, right. So with the bandit tasks in the meta RL setting, you've got this big bag of bandit tasks, and each one has a different uh, set of parameters, reward parameters for each arm. And you kind of make your, in this case, meta reinforcement learner, you make that um, agent uh, learn how to discover the uh, rewarding arms or the the arm reward parameters in any given task that it might face. So yeah, then coming to the you know the question of of how meta learning relates to you know few shot learning, transfer learning, etc. Um, so I, th I think it it um, uh, depends on on which uh, setting we contrast against. So um, few shot learning, I, I guess I could say that meta learning is one way of uh, you know, producing a learning system that can do few shot learning. So with meta learning, um, I could say, oh, I've got this few shot learning problem. Like, um, you know, I've, I've got, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I have, um, the need to see one or two examples of a few, let's say image net category classes of, of a few, um, you know, object categories. And each example is an image. And then I have to, you know, uh, generalize from those examples to categorize other images that might be in the same category. Um, one way that I could do that, um, provided that I had a bunch of other ImageNet categories and data examples, is that I could set up a meta-learning training distribution um, from which I could draw a whole bunch of these few-shot learning problems, and then I could evaluate the system on held-out few-shot learning problems, or in other words, on held-out categories. Um, and in fact, this is what, um, you know, the matching networks paper does and, and a whole bunch of other papers after that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, an it's an exciting way to do it. Uh, similarly with transfer, um, you know, if, if you kind of have the setup that, um, or the problem setting where you want your learner to, uh, learn some stuff in some environment or in some, um, some task setting, and then, in another task setting, make use of the same information. Um, you know, a primary problem there, if you're just using standard uh, neural network training, is that your network overfits to the first 
task and it's not able to make use of the commonalities between the first task and the second task. And the way that meta learning gets around that is to say, well, okay, we're actually going to sample a lot of these tasks and train the neural network in sequence to solve them. And this prohibits it from overfitting to any particular one. Um, and it, kind of similarly with, with domain generalization, it's, it's the same kind of idea. You want to be able to generalize to a new domain. If you can sample a bunch of different domains, um, then you can prevent from overfitting to any particular one such that the sort of um, the key commonalities, the key generalities across them um, can kind of emerge uh, in your policy. Um, yeah. And in continual learning, I'll just do, do one more of these. Um, continual learning, I guess I always think of that setting as, as one where you've um, kind of uh, asserted that your agent has to experience task A for a while and then it will experience task B. And there's no option to have the, um, the, the, the task setting or the environment give you uh, experience from those two tasks in interspersed. So it's, it's very much non-IED. And I think that that one, in contrast to the other ones we mentioned, I think that that is just a very different problem setting from meta-learning, where you're kind of insisting that we are not allowed to do this IID task sampling like we do in meta learning. So in some ways it's maybe a, um, it feels like a more challenging and, and more open uh, problem than meta learning to me. Which I guess our current generation of function approximators really likes IID and really likes being able to go back or kind of needs to go back to, to sample previous tasks and has trouble with this domain shift. Is that right? That's, that's exactly how I think about it. Yeah. Um, I know that people are developing um, lots of methods um, for trying to make the, the, um, the learning system itself or to make the neural networks less reliant on this IID, uh, experience generation. Um, but you know, I, I, I think it's an exciting open research area. There are some replay methods that seem particularly promising to me. Um, but I think you nailed it. Yeah. It's sort of the, the bog standard, uh, deep learning methods really require IID sampling and meta learning kind of just says, fine, we'll just IID sample learning tasks for you. Okay, so let's move to uh, the first paper we're going to talk about today. That is Unsupervised Predictive Memory in a Goal-Directed Agent. That's the Merlin paper by Wayne et al. in 2018. Can you give us an overview of this paper, Sam? Totally, yeah. So um, hey, I mentioned this paper a little bit before uh, because it, at least for, for us, for kind of the, the little community of researchers that, that I um, am a part of, um, it kind of opened the door for using um, non-parametric memory or just like an agent state that grows, um, in DeepRL. Uh, so, so a little bit of context here. This was around 2016 when, when this work was being done. And, uh, you know, the, the A3C paper had come out quite recently. Um, so, so Vlad Mni had kind of shown, um, okay, right. We can do DQN, which has, uh, you know, a feed forward architecture. Um, but now with A3C, we can actually use uh, architectures with memory. So we could use an LSTM in a deep RL agent and get great results. Um, and, you know, around this time we had the NTM neural Turing machines and, and what became the DNC. And there were the memory networks from, uh, you know, Jason Weston and colleagues. So, um, in addition to, to kind of wanting to go from feed forward to recurrent, there was this really obvious next step of like, let's also try to do the NTM thing of having an external memory. So not only do we have, um, you know, recurrence, um, we have some kind of memory. We also 
can get away from the fixed uh, fixed width or the, the fixed vector size um, inherent in a, a recurrent working memory. Um, and this seemed to be producing good results in supervised learning. So it, I think it was a really, um, you know, obvious and exciting direction. The issue was it, it didn't really work right away in RL. So around the time that I started at DeepMind, this was kind of the state of things. And I wasn't working on, on uh, DeepRL agents at the time. Um, but I kind of was aware that there was, you know, some impediment here. And with the Merlin paper, I, the basic idea um, was let's, um, move on the assumption that, uh, we're not getting great results in RL with external memory because there's something about the noisy RL gradients that make it so that when you, um, propagate gradients between the sort of retrieval from the memory and the writing to the memory, um, things break down and it doesn't work. So they, they kind of proceed on that assumption and say, well, um, maybe we can use an unsupervised learning method to determine what we write to memory so that we don't have to back, uh, backprop those gradients through, or we don't have to rely on them anyway. And then we can just learn uh, the retrieval mechanism onto these sort of fixed vectors. Um, and that worked really well. That's, that's basically the Mer Merlin paper is demonstrating that. So I have kind of puzzled over this agent uh, a few times over the years. It seems like every year or so I pull up the diagram, I'm like, what the heck is this thing trying to do? <laughs> yeah. Seems very different than agent designs I'm more used to looking at. Totally. So in the, in the, in the, the figure, and this is one of the times when I wish we had video, but in the figure that describes like the, the overall agent design, figure one, it shows, um, a few different, uh, agents that, RL LSTM, RL MEM, and, and then the Merlin, the final Merlin agent. And these seem to be, I guess, variations on A3C. Could you very briefly talk about how these three agents differ? What are they doing that's different? Yeah, definitely. So first I want to say, like, I'm totally with you and being confused by that diagram. I actually hadn't looked at that diagram in quite a long time <laughs> because I just sort of knew, knew the architecture from, uh, talking to the authors over the years. Um, and I went to back to look at it before the interview today because I just wanted to remember exactly what was in the paper. And I found it incredibly hard to parse. Um, so thank so, you. Yeah. I mean, you're, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think you're off base by any means, um, finding that thing. Um, <laughs> slightly inscrutable. Um, I think that the, the main, uh, like the, the sort of primary components of those agents are quite straightforward though. So the RL LSTM, as far as I know, that is just A3C. There's nothing, um, different about that agent, um, substantively from what's in sort of Vlad's, uh, you know, A3C paper. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. RL mem is then, the addition of an external memory where at every time step you're, uh, projecting your, uh, hidden state with, uh, you know, a, a neural network. And I don't remember if that's a linear layer or an MLP, um, to, you know, some size. So let's say you've got like a 128 size LSTM state. I'm going to um, project out to, you know, a 50 dimensional, uh, vector that I'm going to store. You put that in the memory and then at, the same time on every time step, you do a retrieval by, uh, with a different neural network projecting out to some, uh, to, you know, uh, 50 dimensions again. And then I don't remember actually if that architecture does, I think it's probably a dot product retrieval there, um, where you basically do a dot product between the, the vector that you generated for 
retrieval or the the key as it's often called and and the vector you want to retrieve which is often called the key um and you know based on the uh the the uh, weight you get back from the dot product you um you basically do a weighted sum over all of the the memories um so it's trying to find similar memories that are similar somehow to the current situation is that right I think that's exactly right. Um, you, you can imagine learning, um, you know, an embedding space where that similarity is something really, really specific. It's like, I want states that had a similar color, um, but I don't care about what objects were present, or I want states where I was seeing an object with a similar shape, but I don't care what the color was. Um, so it's kind of similarity in some learned space. Um, and, and you, you know, retrieve information based on um yeah based on that those embeddings and the similarity in that space cool and then uh and then the merlin agent goes beyond that adding this yeah. memory-based predictor what's going on there that's yeah that's right so so the way that that, that works is you basically rather than um you know just storing a, a projection uh, that you're then going to, and I don't remember actually if that with that RLMM baseline they backpropagated through it or if they didn't. I, in the diagram, it suggests that they did uh, that they did backprop through it, um, which slightly surprising because there's a later paper, this MRA paper, where they show that things actually work pretty well. It's different tasks uh, when you do that. Um, so I wouldn't read. I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to read too much into like little details about that. But in any case, with that agent you're just storing a vector that you've either learned from gradients from the future that, that are backpropagated through your retrieval pathway or are just untrained. So you're just storing something and it's a random projection, um, which believe it or not, that actually does work pretty well a lot of the time, hmm. um, but sometimes not sufficiently well, depending on the task. Um, so with Merlin, what they do is they just run a variational autoencoder on the um, sort of the, the current uh, LSTM state, um, in order to decide what to store. So it's basically, you know, the, the standard, again, this is like 2016. So VAEs are all the rage. So, you know, there's this kind of obvious logical step, which is like, oh, we're not, we're not happy with the, um, the random projections. And, uh, you know, we're basically not getting good performance when we put random projections in the memory and things aren't getting much better when we're back propagating through the memory. So maybe there's some unsupervised loss that we can put on this thing that will make it so that the things in memory are useful in the future. And because VAEs are really popular right now, let's try a VAE. So we'll basically take the vector that we were going to store and we'll treat it as the latents for a variational autoencoder. And I think in this work, they actually were trying to predict the, the next time step. So it's, I guess it's a, um, yeah, variational next step predictor. Um, but you know, a lot of these details like that, again, I wouldn't read too much into them because it changed a lot over the cycle of this project. Um, basically the idea is like, we're going to, um, sample some latents and try to either reconstruct the current frame that we're seeing or predict the next frame. And I, I think it's actually predicting the next frame in that diagram, if I remember right. Um, and basically, I think the, the, you know, the main thrust of this paper is like, look, if we add this unsupervised loss such that we're not just putting random projections in the memory, we're putting, um, we're putting representations of the current time step that have been shaped by this next step prediction loss, then we can get better, we can get better performance in our tasks. 
So what type of tasks uh, does this type of agent uh, work well for? Right. So they have um, you know, this latent learning task where the agent is kind of just running around in, in an environment and then, you know, for a while without a goal. And then it's given a goal and it has to navigate to it. Um, they have the memory game, which is a, a really nice task. It's it's kind of the one that, you know, you might have played as, as a kid where um, and I think I think maybe Clue is like this. I think there are some some uh, common games that are like this, where you basically have a bunch of cards laid out on a table um, face down, and you're allowed to flip over one at a time and see what the face is. And there are some there are some pairs in this set of cards that you have, and your goal is to flip over a pair in sequence. So you you basically have to remember where the things are that you've flipped over, so that you can intentionally flip over two in a row. Um, is that is that a familiar game? Uh, yeah, I remember playing that as a kid. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, that was that was like a, a classic. I remember they were really excited when they finally got that one to work. Um, so yeah, it's it's tasks like that that, that require like so in the latent learning um, setting, for instance, an LSTM will just probably not remember um, very much of what it's seen uh, during the sort of exploration phase, whereas the um, uh, the agent with the external memory and with representations in it that are shaped in a reasonable way. So they're not just random projections can actually remember what it saw before in, in order to navigate effectively. So we had uh, rich Sutton's bitter lesson um, article recently where he talked about, you know, data always wins and maybe is that more, more data always wins. Is that, um, does that inform your choice to, to focus on meta RL that, that, uh, that even, even learning the, the algorithm one, one level higher than maybe you would traditionally consider, um, is something worth doing because with the right data and learning system, we can, we can learn to do that better than we could hand design. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say that wasn't part of my original motivation, but I think it wouldn't have been a bad reason to do it. Um, and it might be a good reason to keep working on meta, meta RL now. Yeah. It's interesting that better lesson because, you know, <laughs> there there are a lot of settings right now that I would like to be able to make progress in that I can't make prog- progress in with Meta RL. So it's a very basic one, just Atari. So the whole idea with Meta RL is that you're going to sample all these tasks from a task distribution, and by training your learner on it, you're going to get good at solving those tasks super fast. So okay, can I do that with Atari? I I really can't because I've only got 57 Atari games, and they're really quite different from one another. Um, so, you know, I can't sample 10,000 Atari games or a million Atari games. And then the 57 real ones are samples from that distribution such that I can, you know, have those as my held out tasks and learn by meta learning a great, you know, a, a really great policy for, for learning these ones that I care about. So yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder about that bitter lesson. Maybe I, I guess there's a hypothesis that eventually we'll have access to so much data, you know, maybe by learning on all of YouTube, then we can, you know, with, with other algorithms, it wouldn't be exactly meta or like we have now, but with some clever algorithms, we could basically just let the data tell the agent how to solve those. But I have to say right now, as of 2021, I'm, I'm really keen on methods that are a little bit more, I don't want to say hand design, but where, you know, as, as a researcher, we can design something that, that can solve Atari a lot faster than we can, right now um, because there practically speaking isn't a way to just let the data do it cool and then how does uh going back to merlin how does it handle uh, exploration is it using a standard a3c exploration strategy or is it doing something different there do you think yeah 
Yeah, 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 it is. So, so that agent, and actually all the agents we'll talk about up until the very last paper, um, basically are just using the, the exploration, um, and the credit assignment. Basically all the RL is, is the same as A3C or Impala as kind of your standard, your standard agent. Um, and it's really just the architecture that's changing in these. There is one caveat to that, which I think in at least one of their experiments, they, they did like reward shaping, like in the latent learning one, because if you just used the policy entropy exploration from A3C, they wouldn't be able to run around the map to see stuff in order to do the latent learning. Um, so yeah, I think that demonstrates just, just how much in this past work we were kind of stuck with the, some of the limitations of, uh, the, the sort of the basic RL algorithm we were working with. And then speaking of sampling games in Atari and not having enough games to sample from, I mean, would uh, would you consider something like ProcGen from OpenAI, which is generating new levels, would you consider that kind of a form of meta-RL because you're learning how to solve these sampled, sampled games, or is that kind of splitting hairs at that point? It, it definitely feels like a, a meta-RL setting to me. Um, I think, you know, there's there's that, there's the alchemy um, data set that came out um, from from DeepMind recently, there's Coin Run was another nice one where you could programmatically generate tasks, and of course, like in in um, you know Majoko and Continuous Control, there's a lot of meta RL work that's just like sampling from like a distribution over you know how much the legs weigh and things like that. Um, so so yeah, I mean I'm I'm definitely excited about those. I think the the tough thing is trying to generalize. So let's say you've trained an agent on on like ProcGen or um, uh, what's that other one? Um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but something like Alchemy. Let's say you train an agent on those, but then you want to generalize to Atari or you want to generalize to um, some other game or some task that you you want to solve um, in an applied setting. There's not really a way to do that generalization. It really only works um, within the task distribution that you've kind of cooked up. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the next paper here today. That's Meta RL Without Forgetting. Been there, done that. Meta Learning with Episodic Recall. That's by yourself, Samuel Ritter, uh, in 2018. So can you uh, give us the lowdown on the, the main idea in this paper? Yeah, for sure. So this is the one that we were talking about earlier, um, where my advisor said that, oh, Meta RL acts like a hippocampal amnesia, amnesic. Let's try to fix that. Um, so basically, in this work, um, I kind of picked up um, where Merlin left off or kind of, you know, went through this door that Merlin had opened, if you will, um, to say, all right, like we've got this episodic or sorry, we've got this uh, recurrent working memory that's doing these cool things, solving these bandit tasks, for instance. Um, and I basically want to take the knowledge that this recurrent network has gained through some really smart, um, you know, exploration. And I want to store it in such a way that it can be retrieved later when the agent needs it again. Um, and so basically the, the way we ended up doing that was by having an episodic store of LSTM states. So in contrast to, to Merlin and a lot of other episodic memory work where the thing you're storing is some projection of the LSTM state, in this setting we were like, no, like the LSTM state has exactly what we need. Like for instance, it has the bandit parameters encoded in it, or at least it has the the sort of state of the bandit solving algorithm um, encoded in it. If you will, it's kind of got the the belief state, um, and so we're just going to store that raw in the episodic memory. Um, 
and then we're going to pair it with a contextual cue. So these were um, recurring bandits, right? And uh, and the sort of the basic task setting from from that paper. Um, and each time a bandit would would reoccur, it would come along with um, I think in that in those experiments it was an omniglot digit. So it was kind of like you were at you know a, a, um, a bandit in a casino, and there's like a picture above the uh, the bandit that you're playing. And so later on, you know, the next night or later the same night, you come back to the same bandit um, and you're like, oh, I remember that picture. I remember that I actually found that this arm was working really well all the time. I mean, I assume in actual casinos, it's like more like a wandering bandit or so it's randomized or something. Um, but in in this um, task setup, uh, when the agent saw the same image again, it could assume that it was in a bandit problem with the same arm parameters. So if it had solved that bandit problem before, or at least done some ex exploration and learned, um, gotten some information about what was probably good or probably not good, then it could um, assume that that would still be the case. And so with this episodic memory, what our agents could do is do a, you know, a search in the memory by doing this uh, query, this neural network-based query, like in Merlin, over the um, contextual cue representations. And then um, one kind of key aspect of this work that differentiates it from, from pretty much all, all the other um, episodic memory DeepRL work I know of is that when we retrieved from the episodic memory, again, rather than doing some projection of what we retrieved and feeding it as input to the recurrent network, instead, we basically said, well, we know that um, vector that we stored has the information we need. And we know that the recurrent weights, so the dynamics of the LSTM are already shaped in such a way to process that thing. So let's just sum it on to the LSTM state as though it was another um, sort of another component of the LSTM. So with an LSTM, you know, you have the input times a gate plus the previous state times a gate. And here we are saying, well, let's actually add another gate for reinstatement. For, for kind of the the, um, the past LSTM states that we've retrieved based on contextual similarity. We'll have another gate and we'll just multiply the retrieved uh, uh, LSTM states, the old LSTM states, by this gate and sum those on with the other two. And that turned out to work super well. Did that surprise you or did you expect that to work? I, I remember, so I, I kind of expected that it would work to... Um, retrieve this information from memory and feed it into the LSTM somehow. Um, I was really happy to see that this particular way of doing it worked a lot better than feeding it as an input or projecting um, and feeding it as an input. And I was especially happy with the formulation where it was basically like another gate. Um, and I think when we talk about the dissertation, part of that will become clear. Um, but I do remember I had this meeting with um, Razvan uh, Pescanu, and he suggested something about that that way of gating um or yeah he mentioned something about um how you could treat this thing as though it was another gate and like i went back uh to the code and like ended up trying this particular version and when that version worked i was like that is so cool like i didn't expect that to work it ended up just being kind of pretty i suppose cool okay so speaking of your dissertation let's get to that this is meta reinforcement learning with Episodic Recall and Integrative Theory of Reward-Driven Learning, and that's Samuel Ritter, 2019. So can you briefly tell us uh, what your dissertation was about? Sure, yeah. So basically, the paper we just talked about was in ICML, and um, you know, I was kind of happy with that as a 
sort of machine learning paper or a machine learning project. And then it was kind of natural to ask the question, can we take this architecture that we've designed uh, seriously as a model of, uh, of reward-driven learning as it happens in the brain? And there were some reasons to think that might be a good idea. So, um, you know, my advisor had this, you know, uh, qualm with the original meta RL model that it acted like a hippocampal amnesic. And, and they actually had this paper where they argued for that model as, as a model of what's going on in the brain, specifically as a model of, um, the interaction between prefrontal cortex and, uh, the striatal dopamine, uh, learning system. So just to take a step back there, I mentioned that uh, Jane and, and colleagues, Jane Wong and colleagues, had this paper in Nature Neuroscience on meta-reinforcement learning. And, and that's the one I'm talking about here. So, yeah, they, they had this, this nice paper where they provided all of this evidence that you, you can explain um, a bunch of different behavioral and findings and neural recordings using this idea that you have this recurrent working memory. And this is the thing I didn't mention before. And that the weights of that recurrent working memory are trained by a learning signal that's produced by the striatum, which is this um, subcortical structure. It sits below the, the cortex and, and projects uh, neurons into the cortex as well as other areas. And, and these neurons um, emit this neurotransmitter dopamine, um, which is thought among other, th- among other effects to have uh, uh, to, to kind of modulate plasticity. So the idea in uh, this nature neuroscience paper is that maybe what's going on um, in uh, you know human and animal learning is that uh, the striatal dopamine system, which is by the way like um, very well studied um, and some of the most kind of exciting and um, believable findings in cognitive neuroscience are are about this system. So it was really exciting when when Jane and and Matt. Uh, came out with this paper saying like, well, maybe what that system is doing, the system that we we generally know a lot about how it works, we don't know exactly what its kind of downstream effects are. Maybe what its effects are are to train the dynamics of this recurrent working memory such that that working memory can then execute reinforcement learning algorithms. So just to, uh, that's kind of like a, a big statement. So let me just unpack it a little bit more. Like the Striatal dopamine system is really a very simple, uh, uh, I guess it uh, implements a very simple algorithm. Specifically, we think of it as, as doing, um, reward prediction errors, um, and kind of doing value prediction. Um, so we think, we think of it as basically a, a TD learning, uh, uh, implementation. And one problem with this is that the, um, animal behavior and, and human behavior shows evidence for lots of different kinds of learning algorithms that are more seemingly more sophisticated than that. And so in Jane and Matt's paper, they argue, well, the reason that that's possible is that those more sophisticated behaviors and, and um, this more these more sophisticated uh, learning phenomena are arising uh, via meta-reinforcement learning that is carried out by this very simple striatal uh, learning system. That was, that was basically... The, the prior work. And then one big hole in that picture is the fact that that system just forgets everything as soon as it learns it. So you, you've got this hard won knowledge that you've gleaned through this really smart, uh, reinforcement learning algorithm that you learned through, 
um, you know, striatal dopamine, but then you just forget it right away as soon as you go into another context. And that's really not ideal. Doesn't seem like uh, a, you know, full model of human learning. And so in my dissertation, the idea was, well, can we model the hippocampus's role in this picture? And, and can we do that modeling with an episodic memory-based deep reinforcement learning agent? Um, so basically, we took that architecture with the um, this reinstatement process where we uh, store LSTM states and we say, well, actually, we're storing like cortical states. We're storing like firing rates across cortex. We're storing those in such a way that they can be retrieved when a similar situation happens again. And this is what I said right there is like a very classic model um, at a high level of what the hippocampus does going back at least to David Marr um, and kind of in our model, we were just implementing it in a very different way rather than having like an attractor network uh, like they would have in, in older modeling work. We just have this slot based memory where we just store everything separately, which kind of gets us away from some um, implementational challenges. that makes it really hard to work with those models. Um, and by doing that, basically the, the thesis shows that you can capture some, um, some specific data, uh, that pertains to, um, the interaction between, um, episodic learning and, uh, the kinds of learning that are associated with striatal dopamine and prefrontal cortex. So it kind of puts it all together into one picture, um, with, you know, cortex, hippocampus, and the striatum, um, and their kind of associated learning phenomena all, all together. So you can see it, uh, via a unified account. Okay. So in this dissertation, you, you talk about how different parts of the brain are involved in different types of learning. And if I gather correctly, that's model free learning with dopamine and model based, mm -hmm. uh, learning in the prefrontal cortex and mm -hmm. episodic learning, uh, with the hippocampus. So can you mm -hmm. maybe tell us more about these three types of, of learning in the brain and, and, and what is each type best used for? Sure. So model free learning is associated with, uh, striatum and, um, it's sort of dopaminergic projections. And the idea is that that is your very basic habit learning or your, um, yeah, your, your kind of learning that comes down to, I did something and then later something good happens happened. So I'm just going to do that thing over and over again. I'm going to do it more regardless of what happened in between. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for example, you develop a habit of, you know, your route to work every morning and you don't really have to plan that route every time you just know, Oh, when I come to this intersection, I take a left simple as that. Um, that's the kind of behavior that we associate with, with model free learning model based on the other hand, um, it's typically associated with the prefrontal cortex. Um, and it's more about explicit planning. So when you're playing chess, for instance, um, or at least, uh, you know, kind of how I imagine, uh, uh, people play chess, I think experts might have slightly different strategies for, for, for playing, but, um, uh, someone like me who's definitely a, uh, amateur, it's all about trying to, to, um, predict out sequences of moves, um, in order to, um, you know, predict some outcome that's really relatively far in the future so that I can decide what to do now. And this contrasts very strikingly with, uh, habit learning where you basically just have to try entire sequences of experience over and over again 
in order to see what leads to good outcomes and to gradually learn to do the things that achieve reward. Um, okay. I think you asked about also episodic and, um, that's kind of a newcomer, I guess, to the, um, to the discussion in, in neuroscience about reward driven learning strategies. So whereas, you know, model free learning and model based learning have these, you know, his, these very historic legacies. Um, episodic learning really starts with, as far as I can tell, with well, this paper, paper from Langill and Diane, and then more recently with some, uh, there's kind of a, a review preview paper from uh, Nathaniel Daw and Sam Gershman, and then a, a bunch of empirical work from Aaron Bornstein that basically argues that the, the picture you get with just model-based and model-free is sort of incomplete, in part because you can see in uh, sort of laboratory experiments the effect of uh, specific single past events on uh, people's decision-making. Um, so you can like show people uh, a context while they're making some decision and then something good or something bad happens. And then like days later, you can show them that context again, and they'll be very heavily influenced by it, um, in a way that's not predicted by sort of the, the classical model free and model based paradigms. And, you know, so these researchers have argued that, look, there's this kind of missing, um, that there's an explanation for this type of behavior that's missing. And it seems really, you know, obvious that the hippocampus would probably be involved with this, given its sort of long-standing association with memory for specific past events. Do you think that our use of these kinds of learnings are different between babies and adults? Like, does this change over our life? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I sort of surprisingly, there's not as much research on that as, as I might have thought, but there is one paper from 2016. Um, I think it's from the Cornell Medical School, uh, where they show that, yeah, if, if you, uh, have children and adults perform some of these classic lab tasks that assess, uh, model based versus model free, uh, learning behavior that um, you know, children exhibit much less model-based behavior than adults do, which is kind of intuitive. You know, this sort of habit learning does seem somehow easier um, or to require less um, than model-based reasoning does. And I can say that over the course of my life, it does seem like I'm better at planning than I was when I was like four years old or five years old. Um but, you know, it's, yeah, it's just one paper and, and some intuition there. So I think it's still a pretty open uh, area of question. And then looking uh, at the broader picture, do, does, does, do these types of learning uh, appear at a certain point in evolution? Or how do you think about, um, you know, whether some of these are more recent or, or ancient? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one as well. And again, there's a lot less work on this than, than I might have thought. But, uh, I asked some friends about this, uh, when, when you asked the question as we were preparing for this, uh, some folks who have, you know, some really in-depth knowledge of, uh, sort of the cognitive neuroscience of these learning, uh, strategies. And I, it did turn up one paper that was interesting, which was showing, or I guess it was arguing for the possibility that, uh, the, the transition from aquatic life to land-based life may have come with, uh, greater requirements for planning. And they do some simulations to show that underwater there's, uh, you know, more direct line of sight that's possible. There's less to occlude your vision. And so there's less of a need for planning. And so they do some simulation experiments that suggest that, 
uh, it's plausible that at that transition in evolutionary history, there may have been, um, you know, a dramatic increase in planning abilities. But um, yeah, that, that's about planning and not exactly about model-based RL, which is like kind of one way you could do planning. Um, so I guess the main takeaway is, again, this is a, a wide open uh, area of questioning. So yeah, if you want to start a cognitive neurobiology, evolutionary neurobiology lab, I think this might be a cool question to start with. <laughs> Let's move to the next paper that is rapid task solving in novel environments. Uh, that's by Ritter et al. in 2020. Can you give us the uh, the gist of this one? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I do want to point out actually that at, at this point, you know, the next two papers we're going to talk about in contrast to the earlier ones, which were doing my PhD. So it was all very sort of lonely and isolated work. These these were done in tight collaboration with with some other people. So I really cannot by any means take um, uh, all or even, even much of the credit for it. So especially I, I want to say David Raposo, I've been collaborating with for the last two years. It's, it's been amazing. Um, I think my work's gotten a lot better from it. Um, and also uh, in this paper, uh, Ryan Faulkner and Laurent Sartran, um, we were kind of all working on it. Yeah. Um, sort of, sort of full time. It wasn't this kind of single author. The first author does 99% of the work sort of thing. It was really, really nice. Um, and yeah, basically in this work, we wanted to push the boundaries of, um, meta reinforcement learning with episodic memory and specifically we wanted to do it in service of building agents that could build models on the fly um, so we wanted an agent that we could drop into some new environment and it would kind of know how to start exploring the environment in an intelligent way kind of the way that meta rl agents do but further we wanted that agent to be able to gather knowledge and then repurpose it and then basically use that knowledge for planning um, in ways that previous meta RL agents just don't do. So to be concrete about it um, in a navigation setting, because that's the maybe the easiest to think about, we wanted to be able to drop an agent into say some neighborhood and tell it, we want you to go to this goal location, show it an image of where we want it to go and have it, intelligently explore the map in order to find that goal location. But then we wanted to be able to give it another goal and have it remember what it saw along the way and piece together um, a better strategy for getting to that goal than just kind of its basic exploration. And, you know, our reasoning was that after some relatively small amount of experience in an environment, um, agents with these sorts, with this sort of ability should be able to just plan by shortest paths to any goal that we would give it. Um, this is, you know, something that humans can, uh, can do at least intuitively. It seems like this is something we're quite good at. Um, but it's definitely not within the wheelhouse of, um, of agents before these ones. Um, part of the reason that we were keen on this is we thought that we could do it really well with, with episodic memory and deep RL. And, and so we started out with, um, you know, with, with tasks like the one I described. So maybe I'll just go with that one. We used the street learn environment um, that came out a couple of years ago. Um, and we just kind of um, modified that environment so that we could sample neighborhoods from many different cities uh, for each task. And then we'd have held out neighborhoods to evaluate the agents on. And um, with this task, we we tried, um, you know, first of all, the the basic 
uh, uh, RNN-based meta-learners, and they do not do well um, at this sort of thing. Specifically, they don't do well at the planning aspect. So they can learn good exploration strategies, which is what we saw in the sort of the previous generation of meta RL agents, but they really weren't able to um, plan these shortest paths. Um, and we assumed that that was because these LSTM agents just couldn't remember what they had seen because these are pretty long episodes. Um, you can't, you know, remember over dozens of time steps, um, this, this kind of information we suspected. So we then moved to the sort of the next step of more sophisticated memory agents, which was uh, Merlin. And there was this other one called MRA that had come out more recently. Um, and these are agents that are like the, the one um, from my dissertation. And, and, um, and like Merlin, they would uh, basically do a weighted sum of the memories in the episodic store based on a single query or maybe a multi-headed query. Um, and they would basically use that to inform a policy. And those agents also, we saw, were just not able to do this planning. So at that point, we were like, mm, this is interesting because these agents clearly remember everything that they need to plan these shortest paths. By you know enough time in the episode, we can be pretty sure that they've seen what they, they need to see. But they're not able to actually execute a planning algorithm over that information. And so we tried a bunch of different approaches um, to enable agents to plan with this information that was in their episodic memory. And the algorithm that we converged on that worked the best and we kind of liked the best uh, was this so-called episodic planning network, which is basically um, an extension to those old memory agents where you could retrieve from the memory and then run self-attention over the items that you retrieved. And I think actually in, in that paper, we just run self-attention over the whole memory because um, the episodes aren't that long. Um, and right. So probably people will be familiar with self-attention. Basically the idea is like each memory queries to each other memory. Um, and basically we would um, iteratively self-attend. So we would select a set of, vectors to attend over and then um, get a new uh, state over that set of vectors as a result. And then we would iterate with the same attention model, that same, um, uh, that same process, some number of times, and then we would send the result out to the policy. Um, and even though it might not be obvious, especially because I'm describing it with words, it might be a little hard to see in the, in the diagrams. Hopefully it's a little easier to see. This kind of architecture is in principle capable of um, learning algorithms like value iteration, where you basically, um, at least intuitively, you could imagine storing um, the identity of each state in each one of the, the rows of the self-attention vectors or in each self-attention vector. And then the self-attention could carry out um, this kind of adjacency computation that, that, that you do in um, value iteration. And so basically we saw that First of all, this agent worked really well, solved the task. It was planning with uh, perfect shortest paths after only um, a small amount of experience in each environment. But further, we were able to analyze the agent and find evidence that it does actually learn uh, a value iteration-like algorithm. Um, and further, that that algorithm generalizes to, to, to much larger maps than the ones that we trained on. 
So in value iteration, we're writing updates as we go. Is that right? And, and is there some notion of writing updates as well? Yeah, definitely. This was the thing that I was worried like might not come through with my description. Um, so basically, when you're doing self-attention, you have like a set of states and you attend to all of them. Um, or you attend from each one to each other one. And then the result is another set of vectors of the same dimensionality. And so that basically provides you with something like a, a little workspace in which you can do this, um, this iterative updating. Um, does that, does that make sense? Ah, uh, so you're okay. So if I understand correctly, the agent's not, not updating any memories, but it's using mm -hmm. its workspace to figure out the value. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, it's a deep architecture discussion for, um, for voice only, but I think we're getting there. Um, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the way that it works is you fix the memories so that they are the same on every time step. Uh, you just write the new one um, on every time step. But then you kind of have, if you will, this workspace. It's kind of like your working memory, I guess, that you can then um, uh, iteratively update in order to execute whatever algorithm makes sense, given the information that's fixed in the episodic memory. Okay, I, I hope a little bit later we can we can talk about contrasting these these different aspects of, of episodic memory. But uh, let's move on um, to the next paper uh, we're going to talk about today is synthetic returns for long term credit assignment, and that is uh, David uh, Raposo et al. in twenty twenty one. What was the the basic idea of, of this paper, Sam? You know, I, I mentioned that I felt slightly frustrated that I couldn't like hand off, uh, the, the meta RL, uh, algorithms that we were developing to, you know, other researchers who are trying to solve Atari or, um, you know, other tasks, um, that don't have a whole distribution built in. And, and so after we finished that previous piece of work, um, I was really thinking about, what can we do, uh, given the expertise that we've, we've built up and, and kind of improving, uh, the capabilities of these deep RL agents with, with this kind of data structure? What can we do that, that we can hand off that will just work in, in any, um, environment? Um, even those that don't come with like a whole distribution over similar environments. And, uh, and this, this paper was kind of the result of that. Um, so, we kind of identified that the credit assignment and especially long-term credit assignment um, is kind of a primary bottleneck for, um, for deep RL agents, especially for the kinds of tasks that, uh, or at least some of the tasks that are of very central interest um, in, in organizations like DeepMind right now. And we kind of, you know, identified that with this data structure, we, have a lot of opportunities for doing credit assignment that aren't available when you have, you know, only your present state or only your kind of belief state, um, all rolled into one vector. And, and so this paper was basically, um, an effort towards kind of making good on the promise of this data structure, um, for doing credit assignment over a much longer period of periods of time. Um, and with some kind of better variance properties, um, than what you get in sort of standard, RL algorithms. So can you contrast the idea of synthetic returns with, uh, with end step TD learning? Like, it seems like there's, there's something a little bit similar there in terms of bringing the value, uh, far forward or far backwards. End step TD learning is, I guess, an example of this 
very general class of credit assignment algorithms, which I think, you know, the vast majority of the credit assignment algorithms I know of are, are in this category, the ones that are prominent in DeepRL, certainly, um, where basically in order to sort of define the, the value or the utility of, of a state or a state action pair, you basically try to sum up over all the rewards that happened after that state or state action pair. Um, and, you know, with with uh, deep learning, we, we do this with a particular class of function approximator. Uh, we, we use neural networks to try to predict the value. And then maybe we use, maybe we also will kind of train a policy that basically optimizes the same signal, the sum of all the future rewards, right? Um, this is true in, t- in step TD learning. And, you know, even if you just do Monte Carlo unrolls all the way out, it's the same property. And one issue with that um, is that you might have a bunch of rewards that came after some state action pair or some state that are completely unrelated uh, to that state. But then you have some future rewards that are related and you don't really have a way to segregate those unrelated and related rewards out, um, segregate them from each other in order to sort of learn only about the ones that matter. Instead, you kind of just have to sample a lot of experience so that you can let the unrelated ones average out. They'll just average out to zero, but it takes a lot of data um, to do that. And and so we really wanted to, to get around that. Um, and so we, div- and I actually will just take a step back because I think when you asked about TD learning, you might've been asking about this point. Like with TD learning, you can just bring rewards arbitrarily far back if you're willing to wait long enough through kind of, um, uh, sort of the, the value function learning, uh, the boot, the value function bootstrapping. Um, but you still are faced with this fact that the, the value function bootstrap that you're predicting is itself trying to predict a bunch of rewards that might be totally unrelated to the state or state action pair you want to get a value, evaluation for. Um, so with the synthetic return algorithm, the idea was maybe using the episodic memory, we can, um, for each state, and we could have done state action pairs, but in this case we did states because it was a little simpler. Um, maybe we can learn which future states have rewards that are related or are predictable by the current state. And then we'll create a value estimate or a utility estimate. It may not be exactly a value. We'll create a utility estimate that is sensitive only to those ones. So we can just right off the bat, ignore all the ones that are unrelated. And and that's done with, with kind of straight up regression. Is that right? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So it's basically a linear regression where we say at every time step, we'll get some reward and we'll try to predict that reward using a sum over some scalar output function of all the past time steps or of all the memories, if you will. Um, and the result of that is like a linear regression model um, that uh, for each state tries to output its reward as a sum over all past states. And then the um, sort of the weights of that regression model act like um uh, they act like a credit assignment signal. They basically say this past state contributed this amount to the current reward that I'm getting. 
And so using this method, I think you got really pretty dramatic results. Uh, is that right? Like in the skiing game and, and, and others? Can you tell us about the, uh, the performance here? Yeah, sure. So basically we started with, um, you know, really simple, you know, the simplest possible task to illustrate for ourselves, including how, how this would work. Um, we called it the chain task. Um, but then we moved to something slightly more complicated, which is uh, catch, you know, this sort of classic uh, debugging task, but with a twist where you would base the agent would play like 20 rounds of catch without any rewards. And then at the end, it would get rewards for all of them. Um, so it kind of had this challenge of figuring out which of these catch games w- went well, or basically in this undifferentiated stream of experience, what happened to lead to, you know, whatever reward signal you got, um, at the end of 20 rounds. And, and basically we saw that the regression model worked just as we would want to. It worked in such a way that at that last time step, the memory output function would be, um, you know, high only for the time steps at which the agent caught the ball and it would be zero or be close to zero everywhere else. So as a result, you would basically see these little spikes. Um, if you kind of plot the, um, the memory output function for each memory over time, you would see a spike every time the agent, um, caught the ball. And, you know, sort of intuitively, if you just plug that signal, these, the spiking signal in as a, um, auxiliary reward, um, you'll, you'll learn a policy. And, and when I say plug it in as an auxiliary reward, I mean, you just take whatever agent you have. In our case, it was an Impala agent and you just augment the reward with this, um, this memory output signal. If you just do that, then yeah, you'll, you'll find a policy that catches the ball. Um, it works super well. And it's actually, yeah, we didn't have a lot of seed variance there. Um, it's pretty hyperparameter insensitive. Um, so that was really nice to see. And then, yeah, you mentioned skiing. Um, Skiing actually has a pretty similar structure to that, where you have to kind of go through all of these gates. This is a Atari game. Um, and uh, at the end, you get a reward for all the gates that you hit or all the gates that you pass through. And, you know, just as a little context, this game was um, among the last to be solved at all by Deep RL agents. It was just by Agent 57 and, and uh, spring of 2020 that, that it was solved. And in that case, they had like a giant discount factor and they had to wait for 80 billion steps almost for this thing to be solved. And, you know, it it was believed that the reason for that is this really long reward delay um, and this kind of variance in the credit assignment signal. Um, So, yeah, we were really happy that we were able to just totally nail that task, um, solving it in more like a billion and a half. Um, so I think it was like a 25, 25x gain because I actually, they had some seeds that were solving it in like 50 million or something like this. Um, but it was, you know, a really big speed up, even with a much worse or a much less sophisticated agent than the RGT2 agent 57. Um, so it really felt like we kind of figured out what was hard in that task and, and just really solved it. Um, and that was basically where we, we ended with that paper. So do you feel like uh, this is making progress towards uh, solving uh, temporal abstraction in RL? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. I think it could be. Um, one, one way I could imagine this um, sort of contributing to, um, you know, effort towards having uh, temporal abstraction in our agents would basically be to, um, like, compress the memories that go into this uh, regression model. So right now we have this regression model where we have basically one weight 
one regression for every time step. But it doesn't really have to be that way. We could have one regression weight for every 15 time steps or every 30 time steps. Um, and I guess we could even learn the number of time steps that that are kind of treated as a single chunk for the purposes of credit assignment. Um, and then we could kind of do the same process hierarchically. We could say, ah, well, my regression model says that there is you know, a, a reward component of three associated with this 30 time steps. So now I'm going to do another regression over those 30 time steps to see which of them um, contributed, which of them, you know, um, uh, in the context of, of this policy contributed that reward. Um, yeah, and as a result, you're kind of getting sort of a hierarchical um, and, and sort of temporally abstract learning algorithm. The performance here is, is super interesting. Like with such a simple method to improve results uh, so much on, on a really hard task. Congrats. I appreciate it. Yeah. It was really exciting to see that result. I'm, I'm not going to lie. So, but can we talk about the limits here? Like what are, first of mm. all, is this entirely on policy? Because I think the regression is assuming that um, the policy is going to be similar next time around. Is that right? Oh, I think that those are, those are really good questions. Um, so, so yeah, I'm happy to talk about the general limitations and specifically the on policy case, um, I think is an interesting one. So, um, it's yeah, it's almost on policy with Impala. It's very slightly off policy, basically, and I think it's um, it's an interesting question how this will play out in the off policy case. And I, I think maybe this is is this what you're getting at? So basically, um, you know, we're, we're learning something that's like a value function. It's like this utility function that is policy dependent, right? Like mm-hmm, the yeah. the you know the regression weight that I get to some particular time step depends on what I did on what the agent did in the future um, in between that time step and the reward that's being decomposed. Um, so you've got this yeah, policy dependent utility function. And so is this whole setup going to work when we're learning off policy? Um, basically when we're doing, you know, some of the data points in our regression data set are from old policies. And um, I think it's a, at least from a theoretical perspective, point of view um it's a really interesting and and sort of tough question because um you know the prior work that i i know of they um basically do this off policy correction um that amounts to you know downweighting the gradient or downweighting the learning signal um as you roll time forward if your policy differs if your current policy differs from the one that generated the data Mm. that you're learning from and in this case our stated intention is to learn on really long term dependencies where a lot of the stuff that happened in the middle doesn't matter. So if we use like a, you know, retrace style off policy correction, we're going to just kill our learning signal, even though it may have been unnecessary to do that. Is that the issue that you were getting at? Yeah, I just, I guess I'm, I just wanted to, to talk about some of the assumptions that go into that, that regression. And it seems like that's one of them that the, it's, the regression is kind of conditioned on, on the policy or, or maybe being near policy or something. Yeah, it could be. I mean, one maybe counter, counterpoint here is that, um, I'm not sure if it's, it's a, exactly like an assumption of the algorithm more than it is just the, setting we were in experimentally before it's possible that things will actually work better when we're when we have kind of a distribution over policies that we're learning from like something that we saw actually is that 
for instance, in skiing, there's this um, tendency of the of the um, of the agent to learn the task and then like forget it. So it kind of seems like it learned a good regression model that you know spikes for the gate hits or for some other um, good actions. But then the agent starts doing those actions all the time, and it kind of um, no longer needs to decompose reward in that way because it's just always getting that reward. Uh, it doesn't need to look at those gate hit variables anymore. Um, and it's, and it's because of the on policiness that this happens. Um, because your policy is always exactly the same. You don't have to do regression. You just know what the reward is going to be in the current state. Cause you always do the same thing. So the regression model kind of breaks down. Um, if you're too on policy and your policy is too perfect. Um, so I think it's a really interesting experimental question for, for, um, at this point. Um, what happens when we have a replay buffer so that now our, uh, utility function is no longer defined over, you know, a policy pi. It's defined over a expectation over policies pi that are sampled from a replay. Um, I, yeah, I'm really excited to explore that some more. In terms of the brain, uh, we talked about, TD learning and, and one-step TD learning with mm. bootstrapping can be quite inefficient, slowly propagating that value signal. Can you say anything about how that, that compares to what's happening in the brain? Like, do we have that problem in the brain of, of inefficient one-step TD learning or, or are steps in time, uh, treated in a, in a very different way in the brain or, or maybe we just don't know that yet? I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think, I think with a lot of questions about neuroscience, this one verges mostly towards the last option that you gave that we don't totally know. Um, so, right. I mean, this, this classic result that, that dopamine tracks the, the RPE, um, is suggested that there is something, there is some evidence that there is kind of time step by time step TD like reward learning going on in the brain. Um, I think there are some caveats that I, I have around that, but those are super detailed. I don't think we need to um, go that far in the weeds at, at this point. I, I think it's enough to say that there's evidence for that. Um, but there isn't evidence that that's the only kind of learning that goes on in the brain. Um, and as a matter of fact, given some behaviors that behaviors that, that humans exhibit, it would be almost like, impossible for that to be the only way that uh learning is done um in the brain and and specifically it seems like humans are able to do you know very jumpy credit assignment um this this project actually i i think if i had to track it all the way back it got started or its inception was when uh, my advisor matt boffinick he gave this example it was like years ago it was before, way before we started the project he gave this example of how um uh you know he was um, he gave this example of, uh, you know, eating some food, let's say you're, you're in a foreign country and you eat, eat some food and then the next day you get sick and you have this big gap between the thing that caused the bad outcome and the bad outcome itself. Um, but he gave this example that generally we don't really have much trouble with this, especially if there was something a little bit, um, suspect about the food. Like if you're in a country where, um, it's not advised to drink the water, but you eat some food that's probably been washed, um, with tap water. Then if you get sick the next day, it's relatively straightforward to think back and be like, okay, what might this have been? Oh yeah. I, 
I did that thing yesterday that was a little bit suspect. Maybe that's why I'm feeling sick today. And it's very jumpy. You know, it's clearly not like TD learning. It's not like you have to get sick a thousand times and um, by, you know, incrementally um, uh, uh, propagating backwards negative reward, get back to the thing that you ate. Um, so I guess that's a, a long way of saying, I think that it's it's likely that the brain does something very roughly akin to what we've done in this paper. Um, but I, I don't think that, that there's, or at least I don't know of um, yet specific evidence for that. And I think that is uh, a really interesting direction for, for research. Um, maybe, maybe even um, for something, something to pick up if, if I have time in the future. Okay. So let's talk more about episodic memory. Uh, can you contrast the idea of episodic memory with the idea of replays in that we might be more used to in, in deep RL? There's something in common there, but uh, what's the difference? Sort of the, the, the broad distinction is that replay tends to be memory that uh, persists across episode boundaries, whereas, you know, the Merlin style episodic memory is just within episode. Replay is generally used, for instance, in neural episodic control, this paper from uh, Pritzel and Blundell, Blundell and colleagues. Replay is used when you're trying to remember back to some situation that was pretty much just like yours, your current one. And you want to remember if things were good or bad afterwards in order to evaluate your state. Um, whereas episodic memory is where you're trying to remember back to something earlier in the previous episode that might be completely different from what's happening now, but it has some bearing on what's about to happen. Um, and so you need to, so for instance, we have like the key door task where you, um, this is in a couple of recent papers um, from us and others where you have an early phase where you need to pick up a key. You need to learn to pick it up. And then some other stuff happens. And later you need to open the door with the key in order to get a big reward. And in that case, you need to use your episodic memory when you're about to open the door to think back to whether or not you've got the key. And it's not about thinking like, what are other situations where I was near a door? Were they good or bad? Like with replay and episodic control. Um, instead, it's about um, kind of the connection between a priori unrelated events. Does that kind of get to the question? Yeah. And it raises another question for me, like what is an episode? And if you yeah. think of it in terms of neuroscience, is is our mm -hmm. is an episode a like very short term memory or like we don't have this notion of resetting in, in our brain. So what how do you see the notion of an episode and, and the episode boundaries? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, as I was saying that, I was re realizing how confusing the the naming there is because it's like episodic memory is within an episode but you might think it would be remembering back to a previous episode, but that's what replay does. So yeah, I think it's one of these cases where the, uh, the nomenclature is kind of, um, you know, the, the namespace is a bit polluted because one use of it is coming from neuroscience and psychology and the other is coming from, um, like reinforcement learning. Um, but yeah, it's, so, um, to answer that, that question about what, what it means, I guess, in psychology and in neuroscience, it's often defined kind of loosely uh, to just be like some specific thing that you remember from the past, a specific event. And then I think the word event kind of encodes a lot of vagueness. Um, and I think that plays out in there being kind of a whole literature, a very long running literature in, in psych and neuroscience on event representations. Like the question is, how do people decide when an event is over? 
and when an event has begun. That that's sort of an open open question. And for I guess for our purposes or for my my purposes developing these kinds of agents, I basically think of this is gonna sound really confusing, but I think of an episode as just a time step. I think of or or it could be multiple time steps compressed into one slot. So it's kind of like whatever I've put into a slot in my episodic memory, that's going to be the quote episode as bad as the nomenclature is there. So if we have an agent that's maybe doing continual or lifelong learning, does that, does that distinction break down between replay and episodic memory? Cause there is just one episode. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely could. I think if you're in a se- setting like that, whether it's replay, you know, whether it's kind of like DQN or, uh, neural episodic control style replay versus Merlin style episodic memory. I think it might come down to the algorithm that you're using um, on that data. You know, if it looks more like a, you know, just a kernel regression to try to estimate your current state value, then maybe you'd say, yeah, it looks like a replay. But if you're doing more of like a, you know, a sophisticated transformer architecture over a bunch of past states that you retrieved from this data store, then maybe you'd say, ah, it looks more like an episodic memory. I think it would really become a fuzzier boundary. So if I understand correctly, it seems like uh, the episodic memory is used in slightly different ways Mm -hmm. in these different agents. Can you kind of um, summarize how uh, or the different ways in which episodic memory is is accessed and and what is stored here in this this range of agents? Like I I get the, the sense that some of it is like sort of content addressed finding similar things. And then in, in other cases, you had a notion of, of attention. So it seems like it's not, it's, it, there's a range of, of designs here. Can you just help us uh, understand the design space a, a little bit in summary? Right. I mean, I guess you, you've got this data structure, which is just a, a buffer that you can put vectors in. And the design question is, what vectors should I put in it? How should I produce them? And what should I do with those vectors when I pull them out? And so I guess um, the answer to those questions from sort of basic, um, I, I guess, like the, the standard models of uh, cortical and hippocampal uh, learning, so kind of the model of how the storage and retrieval is done that you would find in uh, Randy O'Reilly's neuroscience models or, or Edmund Roll's neuroscience models, basically says that what you store is just your cortical state itself. So this is kind of what's in like the model of my thesis. You just don't project it. You don't do anything special with it. You just store it. And then when you retrieve it, you retrieve it using this sort of associative uh, mechanism. Like you mentioned, you basically at every time step, you look for things that are similar to your current um, cortical state, uh, maybe along some axis. So maybe you learn some projection of your current cortical state for um, doing that associative retrieval. Um, And then when you retrieve it, you just, you know, you reinstate it. You just plug those activations back in. Um, So with something like Merlin, you kind of have a little bit more, uh, you know, mechanism in between the, um, you know, the cortical state, if you will, or the working memory and the storage. So in Merlin, you say, well, I don't think that's going to be quite enough. Like, I don't know enough about the future when I'm in the past to know what I should look for. Like what about my sensory experience matters? Like I've got this huge barrage of visual data coming in and a pretty small vector I store in memory. I don't know what I should encode. So I'll, I'll use like a, um, 
self-supervised learning objective to, to shape the representation I store. Um, and then when I retrieve it, I mean, this was the thing, I don't remember exactly what they do in Merlin. I think that they, um, do an associative retrieval using the, um, uh, LSTM hidden state. And then I think that they feed it back. They, they feed the result into the, uh, working memory as an input. Um, so it's like, you know, you've got your, your observation coming in through a ComNet and then into your LSTM, uh, through the input gate. And then you've got this additional, uh, vector concatenated with the conduct. Maybe I'll just mention that transformers also can be kind of described with this paradigm. So you can basically say with a transformer at every time step, I'm writing some vector and maybe I'm going to backpropagate through the retrieval process in order to determine what to write, or maybe I won't. So in the episodic planning networks paper, we have this transformers like architecture and we just don't backpropagate through. We, we um, found that we didn't need to. And then on the retrieval side, we basically, instead of just querying with one attention head from the current working memory state to all the, the memories, we just have each memory query all the other ones. And then we aggregate the result with like a reduce max, I think. So at this point, you're getting into like the full spectrum of just like deep learning hackery, um, all to answer this question of like, I've got this big batch of vectors. How am I going to turn it into one vector to send it um, out to my policy layer? And yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a really exciting space of space of architectures. Um, it's also explored. I'll, I'll just make a quick mention of Emilio Parasito's uh, paper where he uses transformers and RL. It's a bit of a different architecture, but still fits into the same kind of paradigm where it's just some different decisions about exactly what that um, self-attention architecture looks like. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between RL and neuroscience versus theoretical RL versus empirical RL? Like, how do you see them uh, informing each other? I can't say what it's like uh, from inside of theor- theoretical RL, um, you know, looking out to neuro and empirical, because I'm just not inside that um, community enough. But I can definitely say that RL and neuroscience seems to have um, gained a huge amount from theoretical RL. Um, I mean, just sort of the, the most basic ideas uh, from, you know, the Sutton and Bartow, uh, even going back to the Sutton and Bartow book, kind of show that connection um, pretty clearly. Um, you know, more some more advanced theoret- theoretical RL, like, you know, involved convergence proofs and whatnot, maybe doesn't show up so much in the neuroscience literature. Um, but I think we all feel good knowing that it's there. If that makes sense. Like somehow when we see like dopamine, uh, dopamine neuron firing, tracking the, uh, reward prediction error really well, we feel even better about it knowing that there's so much theory, um, you know, underlying the sort of, uh, convergence properties, for instance, of those kinds of algorithms. Um, and then for empirical RL, um, it's, it, oh, clearly empirical RL is, has, you know, tremendous, uh, takes tremendous value from theory. And I think, um, I, I can only speak from my experience. I obviously think a lot about, um, you know, at least intuitive psychology and some ideas from neuroscience when trying to build agents. And I think it might be that way for a lot of researchers. So there seems to be sort of a, um, you know, connection between those two nodes as well. And then how do you think about uh, learning in the brain in terms of how efficient it is? 
compared to what we might do with algorithms. I guess the brain is still so far advanced compared to our current day algorithms, but can we imagine exceeding uh, the brain's efficiency um, in learning at some point, or is that just, just unimaginably far off? Yeah, clearly right now people can learn in certain settings a lot faster than uh, any algorithms can. I think a well-documented hypothesis for why that is, is that, you know, humans have a lot of, especially adult humans, have a lot of knowledge that our tabula rasa, you know, deep RLH doesn't have. And yeah, I think that there's, there's this open question of whether with uh, sort of enough and the right data, you could get current methods to behave like humans do in terms of their learning uh, speed. And I think that was part of why MetaRL was was really popular for a little while. I think, though, it's unclear whether it's going to be possible to procedurally generate the kind of data that's required to have a really convincing demonstration that um, these these kinds of algorithms can learn at the pace that humans do in, in any kind of um, like a convincing environment, I suppose. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, over the next few years or, or decade um, whether there are improvements in the al- just on the algorithm side that enable a tabula rasa agent to get kind of close to what humans can do, or whether there will be cases where some researchers are able to find problem settings where there is the right kind of data to learn to do something really impressive. I th- I don't want to you know, bet against progress here. I think that it probably will happen that we see some kind of compelling demonstration. Um, but I'm not sure how long it'll be. I see that you, uh, you co-authored a paper in nature communications on decoding brain activations. That was toward a universal decoder of linguistic meaning from brain activation, uh, Perriera 2018. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and recently we saw Neuralink decoding a monkey brain's signals, uh, to use in a game controller uh, directly with thoughts. So I was wondering what you think about what, what they're trying to do. And if this, this kind of uh, brain computer interface is, is inevitable or is it, is it unclear how well it'll work out? What do you think about that? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I guess I'll just initially say the, the Neuralink result is, um, kind of a, a, a demonstration of something that has been done before and quite a long time ago. Um, if, if memory serves, I think it was in the early 2000s that it was first demonstrated that you could have a you know a monkey controlling a, a cursor on a screen. And as far as I know, that's basically what the Neuralink demonstration was. So yeah, I mean, I'm excited that um, it's drumming up some you know kind of public interest in in brain machine interfaces. Um, I'm also slightly quizzical because I'm like it's been around for a long time. I think it's probably because Elon Musk just has. Um, you know, such a star factor, um, you know, he just kind of makes it more interesting, I suppose. So yeah, I, th- I think Neuralink specifically seems to be, I don't know, maybe in the middle of the pack of, of a bunch of startups that are working on this, I guess, working in this space. And there's been a lot of work in academic labs for, for ages, really, I guess, since the nineties, it seems like things were really taking off with respect to this. I, I think it's um, a really interesting direction to go there. So yeah, I, I did work on that um, 
that paper that you mentioned. And actually, most of my PhD, I was working on decoding sentences from fMRI data, which is is nice because it's fMRI is not an invasive method like um, you know in the Neuralink demonstration you kind of have to crack the skull open and stick some electrodes in it's very um you know in, invasive um but the signal to nor- noise ratio is just too low um that that work didn't really pan out and i, I don't see much evidence that anyone else has been get able to get it to work really well either uh, both with fmri and with um eeg it just doesn't seem to be quite enough signal to do um really and useful things. So yeah, with, with these more invasive methods though, um, it's possible to do really amazing things. And and this seems to be, um, most evident in medical applications, you know, where you have someone who has, um, uh, an injury or for some other reason has, has lost control of their body, enabling them to do that is super exciting. As far as I know, a main impediment is, just the ability to leave the recording device in the brain for very long. Um, my knowledge on this is slightly outdated, maybe a couple of years old, but, um, when I, I was briefly thinking about moving in, in this direction, um, that's what I was hearing as kind of the primary issue. So one of the reasons I didn't go that way is, um, it seemed like it was really more of a task for kind of like immunologists and, um, material scientists really to get, to get these electrodes working, the actual, you know, machine learning th- side of things or the neuroscience side, if you will, is, is, doesn't seem to be the bottleneck. Um, so I'm curious what'll happen with that field over the next few, few decades. Cool. Okay. And then besides, uh, what we've talked about here, uh, what's going on in, in neuroscience and RL these days that, that, uh, that you're excited about? I'm really excited about all the batch RL papers that have been coming out. It seems like people are getting really serious about, um, making RL kind of application ready, industry ready. Um, I'm really keen on that. Um, also just the, the sort of deep RL agents, the canonical methods that are kind of nearly on policy or replay based are just getting a lot better. So like mu zero and Muesli and even agent 57, um, are showing that there really is a lot more, uh, room for improvement there in terms of, you know, final performance and sample efficiency. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, in neuroscience, um, just make a a quick shout out. Something I'm excited about is coming out of, um, Princeton from, from my old department. Um, Kyu Hong Liu and Ken Norman are kind of working on using these sort of slot based memory, episodic memory architectures to, um, model all sorts of phenomena in human behavior and cognition. And yeah, I think that's really exciting because the old modeling paradigm, I think I might've mentioned it with like a tractor network, just had some inconveniences that made it hard to make progress. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what will kind of happen with that modeling paradigm moving forward. And then looking forward, uh, what do you see yourself doing? Uh, how do you see your path uh, going forward? Do you gonna, are you going to continue on these, these themes we've, we've talked about here? Mm. I think for a while, at least I'm excited to explore more, uh, the possibility of developing agents that, you know, learn to get higher final performance and learn more efficiently, you know, most likely continuing to use algorithms with this non-parametric agent state, just because it seems to have, you know, I haven't run out of ideas with it yet. And yeah, if there's a chance along the way to do, um, I guess to say something that would be meaningful or, 
um, useful to, to neuroscientists by treating those agents as, as models of um, the brain and cognition, then yeah, I'll definitely be trying to do that in the next couple of years. Dr. Sam Ritter, thank you so much for doing this and taking the time out uh, of your day for speaking with me and our audience. Uh, I've learned a ton today and, uh, and I'm sure our audience is going to love this. Thank you, Sam Ritter. Um, awesome. Thank you so much, Robin. It was a ton of fun. And if anyone in the audience wants to chat about this kind of stuff, I'm usually around on email. So yeah, feel free to, to ping me. And uh, thanks again, Robin. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 